This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. I'm your host, Asher Tolliver. Hope all of you are doing well as we close out another month and make our way into June. Today, I am joined by one of the most interesting and talented gentlemen in the waterfowl industry. His name is Mr. Eric Guggenheim, and he is joining me right now on the phone. Eric, what's up, my man? Hey, buddy. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great, man. I uh, I hear you are headed back from Fishing Paradise, also known as Venice, Louisiana. Looks like you guys had one hell of a trip. Got into some serious gator trout. Tell me about it, man. Man, I'll tell you what. Venice is one of those places that everybody needs to go to. I mean, we've been going there for years. We have a real great guide friend, Orin Monitor at Sea to Sky. Just really knows uh, that area and those fish. But the thing is, that area is just an unnaturally bountiful area for fishing. You know, it's kind of one of those things you got to decide – do you want to go for, for pleasure hanging on the beach or do you want to seriously angle? And if that's your case, Venice, Louisiana is it. I mean, it's the smorgasbord of fishing. And my gosh, we've never had a day with that many big fish. It just was like the fish got to shine down on us. That's unbelievable, man. It looks like you were just killing like 25 plus inch specs. Yeah, that was, <laughs> it was kind of one of those deals that, you know, we, we had a real bad fog and got out there and kind of got to where we were going. It was kind of a, you know, when you're the, the third boat in, you're kind of like, ah, shoot. So we, Mary Caroline hooked up to a nice fish and kind of that anomaly. And like, okay, we're kind of fishing the outskirts where we need to be. And then it was just like one after another, after Jeez, another. Man. And, and I would say within hour and a half, I think, I think hour and a half are 50 fish when 147 pounds. Oh my gosh, dude. That's <laughs> insane. I caught one last year in Big Lake there south of Lake Charles that was it was right around six pounds. But that's that's my biggest. I've never just sat out there and caught specs of that size, which Venice is just an incredible place, man. Like you said, if you decide you're going to fish, it's the place to go, whether it's inshore, offshore. I mean offshore you're, you're getting out there to deep water so fast, getting into tuna and wahoo and mahi. And if you want to stay inshore and if you want to catch huge gator trout or fish around the rocks and pick off giant bull redfish, it's just an incredible place, man. I We started going down there years ago and my boat, you know, I kind of double it as my fishing and duck boat and it's just not quite big enough for the mississippi river down there if i've got to cross or move around it's, it's great for the marsh but we kind of started going to some places with um a little less water big water you know kind of staying inside staying a little more protected but you know i think one day I'm, I'm gonna have to get a if it all works out i would love to get a bigger boat just so i could explore a little bit more around venice and you know some water that's not quite so intimidating in a 16 foot duck boat but man what an incredible place that is i'm i'm thrilled that you guys had such a good trip and that's what i love about that place like you said i, I mean i've gone out days with guys gone out in the morning pounded redfish and trout turned around headed offshore and caught snappers and we're still back right. at the house by three o'clock like 
what the it's heck? incredible man it's incredible you don't have deep to go place. very far to get into some big fish and some deep water googie let's talk waterfowl man let's uh um, let's, let's go back to the beginning tell us about your youth growing up the path that led you ultimately to where you are today sure so i'm from amarillo texas and uh growing up in the panhandle you know waterfowling was a, a big part of, of my family but in the panhandle we don't have a lot of deer hunting uh just not a i mean we have a two-week season and if you've ever been to amarillo there's no trees i mean we have mule deer and that's basically it so my parents had farms out in uh, West Texas outside of Amarillo in a town called Dawn, and, which is by Hereford. And so we had big tailwater pits, uh, playas, and uh, my grandfather uh, on my mom's side was a really big duck and goose hunter and pheasant hunter and my uncles. And so that's just what we did was waterfowl hunt. And that was kind of, that's really where it all started uh, for us. I mean, looking at uh, Toby and I were talking the other day. We thought our grandfather was a baller because he had a dozen herder shells. But we were like, "Oh man, what a guy! I mean, what a baller! What 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 a stud!" <laughs> They're like foam, you know, styrofoam beer coolers, <laughs> but they worked. Right. <laughs> and we would and uh, we would all lay under uh, a camouflage tarp uh, or parachute, like a World War II parachute. That our layout blind. We lay under it and just pound geese. Dude, that is and that was yeah, a really good experience. You know, you briefly you, you mentioned Toby. A lot of people, the fun fact, a lot of folks may not know is that Googie and Toby Brolin, that's owner of Cadillac Creek Outfitters, the first cousins. People that might listen to this podcast regularly, you probably uh, know who Toby is. Um, I'm proud to call both of you guys my friends, but that that's awesome that. Um, you know, you guys got exposed to waterfowl at such a young age. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, a lot of people uh, don't know that Toby and I are cousins and stuff, but our grandpa Brolin really was that, if you want to call it, you know, the the top of the, the, the pyramid. And this is kind of goes for everybody out there, whether you're a young guy, have kids, going to have kids, but we're the product of a grandfather and uncles or his dad and you know my mom and and other uncles who who genuinely passioned for mm -hmm. the outdoors and waterfowling and you know we now have you know fast forward we, we unfortunately we lost my grandfather too young and toby's dad way too young because uh it either goes good or bad we haven't fully decided yet because i'm not sure we would have either been outfitters because our our biggest clients <laughs> would be our would be our granddad and sure. his dad <laughs> but uh yeah it's a Education was second, hunting was first in our lives. But really, the, the investment that both that you can have on your kids, or in our case, our you know granddad and and so on and so forth. I mean, look where we are now. I mean, who would have? Sure. They would have never known. And back in those days, there wasn't such thing really as outfitters. I mean, you just went and hunted. Definitely, man. Now, tell me a little bit about when you went off to college. I heard that you graduated from Harvard. Yeah, that, can you, that came can you tell us later. about that. Okay, okay. Can yeah, you tell us about later. that uh that whole process? Where did you did you go anywhere right out of high school? What ultimately led to the decision to attend Harvard? And then tell us a little bit about your time there. So here's kind of how the here's how my I'll, I'll sum it up pretty quick. So 
when I left high school at Amarillo, uh, I wanted to guide. Uh, I was, fly fishing is a really big sport uh, in Amarillo. People don't realize that the mountains are so close to Mexico and, and Colorado. So, uh, you know, angling is a, a, a big thing. While waterfowl guiding and stuff was not really known at that time mm-hmm. as a big industry, fly fish guiding was. And pretty much, you know, from the time that I was, I would say, I don't know, seven or eight, I've been angling. and I wanted to guide. I mean, when I found out that, I mean, you can get paid and, and sure. I was just a fanatic and, uh, and obviously my parents, like a lot of parents wanted me to go to college and things like that. And I was bound and determined that I'm, I'm going. And so, uh, I, uh, I was in college and, uh, worked really hard to, to not pass anything. I think my grade point average took a special sense of, of, uh, work to get that low because all I wanted to do was, was fish. And so I was spending a lot of time going back and forth to New Mexico. And, uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, started guiding, started guiding the day I graduated high school. I ended up working in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The next morning I had my first trip. So kind of a fun experience to start there. But then after I did it that summer, I was like, Oh, I'm in my element. This is what I want to do. This is forever. And, then at that point, I was like, oh, I forgot I have this obligation to go to, to, go to school. <laughs> and uh, so in the meantime, for the next about, oh, I was on the seven and a half year plan or more. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a lot of colleges, but I always went to colleges that allowed me to guide sure. um, uh, fishing trips and hunting trips. Uh, so I would say I wasn't I was super unfocused because I just what I wanted to do. And so. Um, Finally, at one point, I just, I just quit college and quit wasting money, and I earned the right to buy my own college. <laughs> and uh, but with that, you know, my parents—they're super supportive. But you know, one day I was like, "Hey, I'm I'm not going to college. I'm moving to New Mexico, and I'm out." And mm-hmm. My dad said, um, "How are you getting there?" I'm like, "I'm on my truck." You use my truck? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, sir. Uh, my truck. Well, that didn't go very long, and. I ended up uh, with truckless, and so I was going. So I put all my stuff on my back, and I hitchhiked. Oh, my uh, gosh. I was like, I'm going. I, you know, I would say standoffish, started hitchhiking, and then uh, this woman pulled up who looked exactly like my mom <laughs> and took me there. So mom and I drove out to New Mexico, uh, listened to John Denver all the way, and uh, oh, you know, dropped me off in, in New Mexico, and, you know, I think she probably gave me a hundred bucks at the time, but yeah, it's a pretty good coin sure. back in, back in 95. But, uh, I figured I'd be home in probably a, you know, a week calm right. and I never, <laughs> it, that was a long time ago and I never came home. <laughs> Gosh, that's a great story, man. But that, I lived in a tent, awesome. lived on the river. Uh, I mean, and just did what I had to do. Just drifting, man, from one, just making it happen. However, however you possibly could. Now you were guiding, fly fishing trips out there yeah at that time i was guiding fly fishing trips and then by the next winter uh started uh guiding waterfowl trips in the front range of colorado okay uh, there's a really neat organization called i think at the time it was colorado waterfowl this is all pre-internet i hate to date myself but sure. there there was no in, really internet was not available mm-hmm. well i mean i'm not sure it's invented yet this is 97 yeah and uh so uh, there's a there's a like a lease company in Colorado where you bought a memberships and it was, I mean, absolutely one of the best investments a, a guy could have to hunt ducks and geese all over the state of Colorado. 
and for some extra bucks you could uh get a guide so that's kind of how it started okay that's awesome so when did the when did the harvard thing happen between all this so yeah so in that time uh i started ranger creek uh goose guide service and did well at that and then also had this thing called uh get another job and so in that time period uh started doing another construction company and stuff and at some point uh my some folks that are mentors to me or board of directors said hey look you know y'all are doing pretty good but you're kind of at the top of the food chain you don't know what you don't know mm-hmm. so uh in 2012 much much longer uh, i ended up uh i applied to a bunch of business schools uh, for graduate schools and you know got denied like everybody else and ended up getting to program at harvard uh mm-hmm. and I thought it was a joke, actually. I thought you guys, most of you guys, some of you guys know Justin at Ranger Creek. Yeah. And uh, Justin is not a good joker, or he's a great joker, depending on how you look at it. So I assume that one of these guys had somebody call and, uh, you know, tell me I was in. Sure. And I just like, and I was a complete moron, like complete prick on the phone thinking, okay, this is pretty good. You know, it's a, it's a Boston number. Right, right. Real. And, and so I, I ended up texting Justin. And he's like, that's not me. And obviously, through Justin or Brent or my friends knew it was, they would have done it. But right. um, with that said, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is for real. So I told the lady, uh, her name is Jackie, and I said, uh, this is the real Harvard. And she's like, yes. And I, so I told hilarious. the story, and I said, sir, you need to get new friends. <laughs> I said, you have no idea. <laughs> that is hilarious, man. So what did you study there? So uh, – the business school. I was in the business school. Business so program. Okay. the thing about, uh, you know, and I had a lot of misconceptions, probably like anybody else with the, the East and, and schools like that. And depending on political views or where you stand, it doesn't sure. matter. But I typically tend to be extremely conservative. So I was like, this is going to be a great deal here. I got this long ponytail beard <laughs> waterfowl guide going to show up here to, to uh, this education system of a bunch of smart people who are probably believe everything opposite as I do and I was gravely wrong I was gravely wrong it was a great experience that's you know helped me in everything I've done in my life uh business wise forward and in life it's just a what you kind of find out when it comes to business just like dive bombing stuff doesn't matter what business you're in the rules kind of have to be the same whether you own a guide service or a machine shop or a concrete guy there's basic rules that are unarguable Number one, you have to make more than you spend. It's shocking. Sure. <laughs> but, and that's what I found out is that really political beliefs don't really have a, a place in, in business. Right. Because at the end of the day, you, hard work and a bunch of other stuff pay off. Sure. It's not productive. Definitely not productive. Forrest Carpenter has told me that you're friends with Tyra Banks. Is that yeah, true? Yeah, that was kind of a – yeah, that's, that's, that's a true story. Uh, yeah, she was there. Uh, when I was there and I didn't know who she was cause I've been living under a rock for a long time. Uh, and I actually became friends with her bodyguard and that was kind of a interesting thing. Uh, but just, I was, I'm a big reader. I like to read uh, a lot of uh, books and, uh, I'm a big throw fan. And for all you, uh, nerds out there, uh, Walden Pond is up near Boston and I really wanted to go there. Like this is where it all happened to me. That's like, that's like going to Claypool's Reservoir and for for nerd uh, readers. 
And so then, and I went with him and then the one thing led to another, uh, she and I became good friends and with a bunch of our other folks there. And what I found out was kind of like, kind of like Toby and other people booked books and covers are a bad way to judge things. Sure. Absolutely. So are you guys still friends or not? Yeah. Really? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, we know a couple times a year. Hey, how you doing? How's your how's your mama kids? How's your wife? That kind of stuff. Sure, uh, that's cool. And then we have reunions uh, about every five years, and one ginormous text message with our living group that just kind of has been going on forever. That's awesome, Googie. I feel that you are heavily responsible for the waterfowl photography craze that we have really seen explode in this industry over the last 15 years. And I'm not saying guys weren't taking pictures of waterfowl in the past, but with the growing influence of social media and the ability to establish yourself as a guide and photographer, I feel like you were on the leading edge of this influence that we're seeing today. And I'm not talking about picking up a cell phone and taking pile pics, but the art of capturing waterfowl through the hunt with a high quality DSLR and lens. Thank you. That's a, that's a huge compliment. And I, I really appreciate it. And there, and the, you know, the story on how that happened was, if you know me very well, you'll obviously, I think everyone realized I'm, I'm like the poster child for ADD. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, the biggest thing was me. I've always been an artist and back, back when I started guiding, you know, we, one, there wasn't really digital cameras and, but it, there was no social media. And for me, I was, uh, trying everything I could do to build Ranger Creek and all the things I was doing. And at those times they actually had TV shows, like an actual TV shows mm-hmm. are on TV. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was doing what a lot of these guys are doing everything I could do to try to promote, you know, the middle of nowhere, West Texas. Sure. And, uh, I got it. And there's a, very couple of very very famous photographers i happen to be in that place with two really uh, big outdoor photographers in the commercial game a guy named wyman menzer uh mm-hmm. you live in a town the population of uh, less than less than 100 you're pretty much next to each other <laughs> and so wyman everybody always knew wyman and then a guy named russell graves and russell was kind of one of the pioneers of outdoor photography mm-hmm. for sale if you will he was a catalog sure. photographer still is and um I, I was just in this mass bird killing areas. And, and so I kind of started with those guys being on the front end of the camera, not the back end of the camera. And uh, I ended up getting into a show with Gander Mountain and Michael Waddell and some other shows. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I learned was I learned how to not only set my spreads and things like that for killing birds, but I learned how to set spreads and do those things to make good photos. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, I think Forrest has talked about this some, and, but for me, it was like, once I started doing that, uh, the camera guy for Waddell said, man, you really have an eye for this. Have you ever thought about shooting? And I, no, I, I know nothing about it. I didn't know how to operate a camera. And, but he's like, that's the easiest part of this mechanics is that machine. He goes, you, you see stuff that, you know, would look great. And what he said that it kind of was like a, soul piercing moment of you're right that it has been one of my biggest struggles i would say early on in my life is to 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 really 
explain what I saw on the field. And a lot of waterfowlers can relate to this because mm-hmm. you go home to your, your mom or dad or wife or somebody who doesn't hunt and explain what it looks like to have waffling birds or just all the stuff that we see. You're like, gosh, if I could freeze frame this moment, then all of a sudden it was like a lightning bolt goes off my head. And I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to start learning how to tell stories. And I had two really good storytellers, you know, invest in me and say, Hey, look, your camera is your book to write through pictures. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it started. And then guiding um, every day, clients really don't like you shooting their birds. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you're like, okay, what do I do with my hands? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it, was, it kind of was a perfect storm of, sure. I really, really, really want to tell the story. And I mean, trying to go shoot birds in a park or something else versus, doing it hot is a totally different game. Mm-hmm. And then it became my challenge. It's like, I want to tell the story of what's going on out here. And sure. next thing I know we're here. Well, like you said, you are an artist. You've spent your life in the outdoors. You've spent countless hours laying in duck and goose spreads. So naturally you take your artistic ability, you take, what you've learned by being in the field, being able to anticipate the movements of these waterfowl and hunters, how they react, how they respond, the, the joy, the way birds move, way different species move, the way they approach the spread, it all sets you up to have an advantage over just somebody that picks up a camera trying to go in the field or a guy that maybe is a great waterfowl hunter, but they just don't really have an eye for getting that shot. Like that's why Kate, Kate impresses me all the time. He's so young, but he, it's not like he's that technical on a camera and knowing, I mean, he, he knows obviously what, what settings to use. He's a great photographer, but that's not what makes Cade such a good waterfowl lifestyle photo guy it's the fact that his eye he has such a good eye for anticipating a situation when it looks right changing angles it's he's so good i can't i can't say enough about him but it's it's hard to explain it except other some people just kind of have it and some people don't and you you see it when people have it what was do you know what year that was that you first picked up a dslr Absolutely. Uh, the very first year I picked up a DSLR was 2002. 2002. And you would you yeah. say that was inspired by Wyman and Russell? 100%. Yeah. Uh, that was, I mean, literally, when I saw, when I saw the photographs of the, of, from them, they did the mechanics, they pushed the button, but I created the image. Sure. And, and when I had some first birds backpedaling, there's some amazing photographs of birds doing it in the decoys because before then there wasn't a lot of photo- photography of birds doing it right. in the decoys it was birds doing it on the water birds in this but and i looked at that and i was like whoa i made that yeah <laughs> and then it was like i want to touch that i want to do that again and again and again and again sure. and then at that point it started to because you know for me i, I mean i've killed so many tens of thousands of, I mean, birds, tens of thousands as a guide. Uh, and of course I've been doing this a long time. It's not that, and I, and I, 
but with that, for the for every ten thousand plus at a time I've killed, and there's hundreds of thousands of birds coming in the decoys, out of the decoys, across the decoys, sure. scouting, and then, and so that's kind of how I set myself up. First, I, I'm not a, I wasn't a very good um, product kind of guy. I'm not an emotion guy. Like it's not, I don't have it in me to uh, at first to uh, try to capture the moments of the hunt. I was just purely focused on the animal itself. And, sure. and then once I, and then of course that came a time because then it was like, okay, what, what builds this? And then I started figuring out the storytelling aspect, the stuff that was before the hunt, the after the hunt, the lifestyle, the, right. and, and then I, be, then I became what I call a, a book writer versus a story writer. Sure. And then doing it all through imagery. Uh, but the, the biggest thing for me at that time you know, and I get asked this a lot because people see my cameras and stuff and they see these, you know, big 500, 600 millimeter prime lenses I shoot. Mm-hmm. That's not, I would say maybe one tenth of the birds I shoot are with that. Right. And Russell made a real good point to me. Uh, and instead of Wyman, Wyman said, the best shots you get are the closest animals. And so you don't want a 500 millimeter lens on a, on a turkey at 10 yards. Mm-hmm. And so I really prided myself and on the, that and I used to I used to share this a lot and I still would social media I'll share my camera settings my lenses because I take a lot of pride in shooting a, a 70 millimeter lens and birds in my face why because that bird is in my face right. <laughs> exactly you we spoke about it briefly just a moment ago but talk to me a little bit about the difference in taking pictures in a real hunting setting instead of at a refuge yeah so that and that's I would say if people ask me what's my biggest source of pride in my photography. And I'll tell you, it is that I, I don't, uh, I've never gone to a refuge. I've only shoot hunting photos and what makes that unique. I, I would like to say it's the difference between rifle hunting and bow hunting. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the stakes are so much higher when you're doing it over a hunting situation. Uh, because one, especially as a guide, it's one thing to do it with some buddies where, you know, you flare some birds or something, but as a guide, I'm running a commercial hunt mm-hmm. with guys paying a lot of money to come here on their vacation, on their whatever. And my job is to number one, get them birds. And number two, you know, I'm taking photographs. Sure. And so to do that, it takes, it, it adds an element of, of so much more to think about uh, when I'm doing it. And that's where, and, and birds just, you know, a, a refuge bird is great, but to me, birds doing it in the decoys, they, they, they approach different. They do a lot of different things. Same mechanics of flight and everything else, kind of like McQueenie's book, you know. Uh, but the mechanics of flight, the mechanics of decoying, the mechanics of trickery mm-hmm. is different. And, and it's just like, um, you know, when you watch, you may have the world's best dive bomb spread. You know, let's say you got 3,000 decoys out there. And then there's like seven live birds somewhere and it pulls in the pile. It's right. like, how did that? how did that work <laughs> but it is they, they they do a lot of different things i mean you know you don't really you, you watch birds cross land you watch birds do mm-hmm. all kinds of weird stuff in the wild that they typically don't do in a spread that's because you know they know they're being hunted sure what's the most memorable photograph you've ever captured while waterfowl hunting uh probably the most memorable Man, that's a that's a tough one. I've got I have three of them. Okay, let's hear. One them. of them was uh, with Force Carpenter. Uh, Force was guiding a hunt, and I've been we've been seeing this red collar. I and remember this one. Yeah, I you know I've taken I've taken a lot of pictures of a lot of bands. I've just 
I just see them. I don't know how to describe. I wish I could say that I could tell a secret. I just, I just see bands. And, and a lot of these guys, Cody, a lot of guys will tell you after they do it a bunch, you get to the point when you stare through a, call it a scope, mm-hmm. it becomes how you look at everything. You quit looking at the, the whole landscape. You start looking at very specific stuff, mm-hmm. but we saw this red collar. We knew where he was. We knew how he's going to work. And that next day I was like, I'm going to that field and Forrest had his group set up and I went, I went full commando mode, uh, with the ghillie, uh, suit, uh, sack myself way out far from those guys. Cause the way that the, you know, they were set up to hunt, which is not a, it wasn't a good way of photography, but I'm mm-hmm. like, this bird is happening. And out of nowhere, you know, we, the hunt's been going great. And then I, I mean, I see it. And it's kind of one of those, like I double took. And now I did have my big lens on that. Cause I carry, I carry two to three cameras uh, all the time set up with different stuff. Whenever I'm doing those kinds of shoots, I can't afford to be changing lenses or moving. So it was, um, and I saw it and then it, and then it spun and, and everything inside me wanted to yell the forest, like keep calling, keep doing it. But you, I mean, it was just happened. And I sure enough ripped those pictures in focus, Nick. I mean, that's the other cool part about it. It's not like I was just randomly shooting. Like I saw the collar, I focused oh, the yeah. collar, framed it and let it rip. And then I watched them shoot it. <laughs> they it did get like, it. They killed Whoa. it. We got the bandages and the bandages, the collar and band are in hand. Awesome. And then, and then I turned around and, and the funny part was though, um, after I shot it, I was too scared to look at my camera. I literally put my camera down, got up, walked off and just was like, just laying there going, what just happened? And I put the camera up, turned it off, pulled the SD card out. <laughs> it was like, I'm not even going to chance this thing to have anything wrong and got back to the house. I was like, Oh God, <laughs> Oh God. Awesome. I looked at it one time for the viewfinder, took a uh, picture of myself and a text for us. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Did they see it in the spread? I mean, I figure for it. I mean, Forrest, you know, he's got such an eye for that stuff, but I, you know, I know at times it can be, did they see it when they, like, uh, was it one of those things like they shot it and it's like, yeah, let's go. Or is it one of those things like they just kind of just got lucky that they actually killed it. It was maybe one that was kind of, I mean, was he on the front end of the birds doing it? Was he kind of in that second wave? How did that happen? He was, he was solo. No, no. He was solo. By himself, came in by oh himself. Oh my gosh! And did they see him? They is no. Forrest is yes. Yes. <laughs> and Forrest <laughs> blasting. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was one of those. Didn't call a shot. He just stood up, kind of like, you know what, guys, young, scream at me all you want. Oh, Forrest got his on that one. Oh yeah. Oh, that was Forrest. He oh, up, he did. Up, jumped up and popped it. <laughs> oh, where was that collar from? I, mean, uh, I have to ask Forrest. I, I'm probably none of that. Yeah. Most of our yeah. birds come from up there. Um, that is that's hilarious and we both just sat there and just like whoa this just happened like a single bird coming in with a collar come on that's awesome too cool now i guess y'all had seen him in there scouting the day before yes yeah we've been we've been hunting for a while you had so uh, you knew he was in the yeah. area he was using in there and we're like cool. okay and we all and every day we're like he's gonna do it he's gonna do it so he's <laughs> day and, and then he does. came in solo, man. He came in solo. I'm like, that really? When I had the camera, when I had the, and that's kind of where I would say that was probably one of the most defining moments of, okay, you know, you paid your dues, you made it happen, and here it is. Uh, that's probably one. Of, then, probably my other favorite photo, uh, I would say, is, oh, I've got a great picture. Well, actually, 
of the most memorable photos is a photo uh, for Max Prairie Wings um, um, boat shop because uh, it was that photograph of how I ended up uh, meeting my wife. And uh, forever, that photograph will always be special. <laughs> Definitely. And then you said there was one more, I think. You said there was three? Yeah. The, then the, the final photo, I've got a photograph of, of, of Abby, my youngest daughter, and she's in the blind, uh, and it's cold, and she's got her pink earmuffs on, she's got her camo on, and she's uh, drinking um, uh, like some like some broth out of a cup, and it, I just framed it perfectly, and it's kind of like, in my world, there's a really famous photograph from National Geographic of this girl from India with these blue eyes, uh-huh. and everybody's seen this photograph, it's one yeah, yeah. of many words. It's like that. It's one of those that when people see that, they're just like, whoa, it's mm-hmm. like she's looking into your soul. That's awesome. <laughs> maybe she is, I don't know, but you can tell she's embodying the whole moment of yeah, what's going on. That's, it's like, that's great. whoa. Awesome. Googie, I think it's time for the um, Dive Bomb Squadcast hot seat. Are you ready? I'm ready, buddy. Give me on the hot seat. You may not like me too much after this. Hey, I, you can ask anything you want, and I'll give it. I'll, I'll give you an opinion. Right. Maybe wrong. Okay. If you could only pick one to listen to for the rest of your life, would it be Grateful Dead or Stony Larue? Grateful Dead, hands down. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to choose one thing to hunt the rest of your life, would it be geese or turkeys? Ooh. <laughs> oh, ow. Uh, geese. Geese. Okay. Yeah, that hurts though. <laughs> Man, you you like didn't hesitate on either one of those as much as I I hoped you would. Well, here's the deal. I'll tell you this. So, I, I took I took about a 45 second removed myself from the world and you asked the question and went into like the matrix. <laughs> and I, and I said, well, I can hunt turkeys for the rest of my life. Season short. So, which one do I need to shoot more? <laughs> oh, that is awesome. All right, last so one. Would you? Rather always have BO and not know it or always smell BO on someone else? BO and not know it. Yeah, that one was totally unrelated to anything, but it was one we asked in the bullpen one time and it was pretty funny. And it we, it was always like super mixed. You know, some guys were like, well, I mean, it kind of goes back to the, uh, you know, like the water boy. He says, you know, what? What mama don't know, don't hurt her. So if you, if you don't know that you've got BO, it's like, well, it, it don't really affect me. But at the same time, it's like, man, do I really want everybody think that I'm stinking all the time? I think I would rather them stink. But then you got to smell it all the time on everybody that you're around. So I think I'm with you on that one. Man, I've lived in a lot of guide houses <laughs> over the last 30 years. And I mean, that that's an easy answer if you've done it. You're like, no way. Sure. I'm walking to guide houses I'm like, Someone died in here. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Somewhere. Oh my gosh! That's hilarious, Googie. I know you have been uh, involved with Justin Hill Ranger Creek there in Haskell uh, since the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship going all the way back with Ranger Creek, as well as yeah. a little bit about your uh, place, the Ranchita? Yeah. So Ranger Creek was a was literally uh, the way that Ranger Creek started was. I had, uh, I've been, I've guided for Orvis for years and in Colorado, I was living in Gunnison and was ready to do my own, you know, I had my own fly fishing guide services and you know, outside of Santa Fe and then, uh, guided up in, uh, Gunnison, Crested Butte for many years. And 
uh, it was time for me to own my own uh, waterfowl guide service. But I was trying to, you know, I have I've helped build a lot of guide services around the United States, a tremendous number. And I have a formula. If you want to talk business schools and things like that, there's and I learned this from Orvis. Orvis is a very great organization for uh, how to how to I'd call it corporately build a guide a successful guide service. And there's just certain things that you have to do. And so it was time for me to start waterfowl guiding. Being in Amarillo in those days, you know, while I had access to a ton of land and a tremendous amount of opportunity, probably that took for granted. I, I literally remember being in my mid-20s just begging to shoot something besides a green head. I'm like, gosh, I'm so tired of shooting mm-hmm. all these green heads every day. Wah, wah, wah. Said no one ever. Except <laughs> Yeah. And, and said no one ever until you started going sure. other places besides the promised land. I understand. And uh, so – I, I started, I did a road trip after, after season was over, after youth hunting was over. I'm like, I need to find a place that has this secret formula of success. And so I started out literally from Seattle and drove all the way to, to Crab Orchard, all the way to Tennessee, everywhere to find out, you know, where's the, where's the secret spot of lots of geese near population zone with the ability to get on land, so on and so forth. And just kind of this formula that I put together. And sure enough, I ended up in uh, Knox County, uh, Texas, and uh, internet was, web pages were kind of getting going. They were really bad, and I found this website that had hunting leases and duck and goose leases and uh, outside of Vera, and uh, was, this lady named Renelle Walker had, a, and her husband had a, a big cattle operation up there and ran deer hunts and leases, and I drove up and said, hey, look, you know, I'm wanting to start a guide service, and you know, maybe we can work a deal. And they owned Ranger uh, Creek Ranch was born that day. And I owned uh, Ranger Creek Goose Guide Service. And we obviously, we acted as one and did that for many years. And then uh, ended up splitting from that. And Ranger Creek Goose Guide Service became its own entity, moved down south and all those things. And then um, after years and years of doing that, uh, actually, Justin Hill and I, were adversaries like like straight up is that right? like nemesises like i can't stand you you punk i swear to god i see you on the road let's just let's do it <laughs> and because he worked for another guide service and out there back in those days it was like every day about four o'clock we'd all be at the same andy jeff well andy was like three right. <laughs> i think andy's in the car seat <laughs> and uh you know jeff uh, stanfield me uh justin justin was barely out of college and and he was a real hot shot he thought he's big time he's actually a pretty phenomenal killer but i would never give him that full credit <laughs> i will now but back then we were just i mean it was like every day we, most of the peanut fields out there are day leases there are some season leases back then and so birds come off the big roosts and it was just like uh, a nascar race every day and justin always was just good fields and we got together because we both uh uh, are big into dogs and field trials and hunt tests, things like that. And Justin got a, a dog from a, a buddy of mine who I got my dog from. And he's like, you guys should get to know each other. And I'm like, Oh, I know him. All right. <laughs> Knowing my fist. But, uh, and so we started talking on the phone just, and I found out, Hey, I, you know, you're all right. And he's like, Hey, you're all right. And so we ended up, uh, going on a fun hunt together, opening day of goose season that year. And, it really, really, really infuriated the owner of the guide service he was working for. And so, uh, uh, Justin quit and came, came to work for us and did a phenomenal job, 
killing birds and just really doing everything. And then life and business worked out where I, I had to move to uh, Conroe, Texas, and I really couldn't do both. And it was just time. It's also just time. Justin was in the right place, and he had the desire and the passion to to keep going. And it, it was just time for me to to move on from that side because the guide business is one thing, but when you run one, it's a very different world because mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're an innkeeper, you're a restauranteur, you're a guide, you're yeah. a, you, you know, you're, you're a rabbi, you're all these things in one <laughs> and it's exhausting. It's just exhausting, exhausting. And Justin took the helm and, and, you know, took it to, to, to phenomenal places. That's awesome. So what about your place there? The yeah, so, the, so the ranchita, the ranchita is a super, it was one of those, uh, you know, uh, fill the dreams. If you build it, they will come. Uh, hmm. it, the peanut country is founded by a ton of water and certain things that are, uh, kind of, Oh, if you're in, if you're in Texas, you understand West Texas, you understand there's no water, there's no land. It's all happens in certain areas. And there's this piece of property I've been staring at forever. Never thought I could get, and it looks like a barren desert. Uh, but I, I knew it was a, a wetlands it just needed. It had been drained from from back in the uh oh uh the ccc the conservation courts they did a bunch of work and uh i saw it's like look if i can just get this thing put back together it's going to be the this mecca of of great killing but you gotta have a place to stay and being the artist that i am uh i like to uh i like to repurpose things so i took all the barns everything there on the property and rebuilt the place myself where it's modern structure but if you go inside it looks like it's a a, a cattle barn inside mm-hmm. everything's historic everything's part of it and now you know i built it because i love to teach photography photography is a, a major part of teaching photography is a big deal to me that's you know i'd say ranger creek is a breeding house for photographers but mm-hmm. with that you know I, it is a vision of mine to have like this studio or back room where i could teach classes or do something like that someday if i ever choose to and so we built this place where you know it's just a giant great place to shoot photography come back relax and yet you're right next to waterfowl googie ranger creek for insanely talented guides slash photographers is like the university of alabama for running backs like whenever they had <laughs> Derek henry tj yeldon Kenyon drake alvin kamara all on the same team like the guide roster there at Ranger Creek is stacked, man. Yeah, that you know that whenever I built Ranger Creek, that was one of my goals. You know, being at Orvis, not that there's big names in um, fly fishing like there are. One, we didn't have social media. I mean, that didn't exist. But you know, being a competition caller and all this stuff, I uh, work with Rich and Tone for all the years at RNTV. I knew a lot of really great people that. We didn't really have a connection in the sense like social media now. So we'd see each other at calling contests, the world, wherever it may be. And I was like, you know what? And John Stevens had a really good uh, saying, and I think probably Butch created it, was RNT calls, there's a world champion in every call, which because they tuned them all. And I kind of took that. I'm like, you know what? We need to have that same attitude of every every guide here needs to be the best. And so we set up a... Uh, an, an ideology of what does it look like to be a Ranger Creek guide? And so we did, I went and found the best starting with, you know, some of the first guides there were really talented callers and killers who are, were pros. They weren't weekend guys. Mm-hmm. These were guys who make their living. And so, and then the other thing is we had a really good, I had a good, I call it breeding house, breeding program of guides, guys like John David and stuff who were, mm-hmm. you know, 
12 and 11 years old at the time, knowing that, hey, I'm just going to watch these guys. I'm just going to watch mm-hmm. as they grow up because they're the, they're the real deal. Or in Lana Deer, kid, they're kids, but they you can tell that they're going to do it. They're going to be guides. And mm-hmm. Forrest, I mean, I, don't know, I think Forrest may have graduated high school. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> and we said, you know, when they had the opportunity, like, hey, come down there. But we have a very, I would say, strict guide service of how we train you. We, it wasn't like you can just call geese. There's so much that goes into goose hunting. And so these guys would, you know, come down, clean geese, live on the couch and, you know, make enough bucks to, you know, pay some bills, but they were young. And so we just kind of kept the, the herd going. Derek McDaniels was mm-hmm. our very first big name to bring in. And, uh, and then we just kind of kept that, that seed going and still to this day. But the thing was everybody who came in, I think goose hunting, you, you have to be an artist to be a, a goose guide. I mean, there, there's a love of art form that comes with it that's, that also lends itself to photography. And obviously, you know, me, I, I've never been a selfish person when it comes to that kind of stuff. Here, take my camera, go have fun. And they're saying, you know, they're buying cameras and, and then, mm-hmm. you know, swapping gear, swapping lenses and yeah. spending a lot of time with each other, investing in each other. And then now, I mean, you have the, some of the best guides and by far way more talented photographers than I am. And those guys are, those guys are sick. Yeah. I mean, it's good of waterfowl hunters, guys like JD Stanley, Cody Grounds, Richter, you know, as good as they are at waterfowl hunting, like you said, their skills behind a camera may be even more impressive. And like you just said, uh, you know, our very own Forrest Carpenter, he's a product of a uh, Ranger Creek university. So these guys are, I mean, they're top of the line goose guides, but the media that they're able to capture during these hunts is, it's mind blowing, man. And it is, you know, what's, is everybody can probably relate to this story. You know, everybody goes into the, into the lodge at night. Oh man, you should have seen this. You should have seen that, man. They did this. They banked this. Oh my gosh, this one bird did this, you know, very typical conversations. Sure. And we kind of took it to that next level of show me. Right. So let me see it. And then it became like, okay, I got to catch that. I want to catch this. That's and then, awesome. and then, you know, next thing you know, instead of us telling the stories, we're all, I mean, if you ever come to Ranger Creek uh, guide house at night, it, it glows with, with Mac laptops around a table, everyone <laughs> whipping out SD cards. It's, it's fun to watch. Yeah. sometimes annoying, <laughs> but you know, it's, and the funny part, there's not a single picture of us doing that. <laughs> right. No, nobody's ever taking a picture in the yeah, house. <laughs> that's right. That is awesome. Some folks may not know about your background in music and handcrafting guitars for famous artists. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the folks you've made guitars for? Yeah. So, um, you know, also kind of kind of like Toby, you know, both of us have just been musicians since we were born and love playing mm-hmm. music and wanted to be professional musicians uh, and, you know, maybe God given talent to, to understand music and play music. And so the, this kind of went with this lifestyle because being a musician and a guide all kind of work together. And especially when you go back in those days, you know, red dirt music hadn't really happened. And so a lot of the guys that I knew were getting started and we all played together. And, and, but I got to the point where I was, a am I would say I'm a, I'm a fanatic for sound. This is probably why I like the goose calling so much is I could never find the right instrument I wanted. And I was, and I got really lucky growing up. So did Toby. We, 
there's a very, very, very famous set of musicians in Amarillo. And Amarillo is a tiny town back then. There's 110,000 people. And the Texas Playboys musicians were there. And, and mm-hmm. Blackie Foster, uh, Toby and I used to go to school, even though we're a lot further apart. But they had a picking session every Thursday morning. And uh, my school would actually let me out to go play. I did it for years and years to learn to play bluegrass, and, uh, Western swing, and uh, those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. so... But with that, one of the guys was a, a luthier and not a Lutheran, <laughs> no man of the cloth there. But uh, and I was just intrigued with building instruments and trying to get that sound. And uh, I ended up going to school to uh, and I became a luthier. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends you know, became, I would say, uh, big and famous musicians. But there's always something like, man, you know, your tone doesn't sound right. And so I started a, a shop in Amarillo back in 90 uh 97 somewhere around there where i because i-40 and i-27 are all right there in amarillo mm-hmm. so every major touring everybody comes to amarillo and and uh one of the guys who fixed instruments who taught me uh was old and retired and eventually died and so there's a need to have what they call road road shops so you're um you're some famous musician you're coming through town you bust your top of your guitar or whatever you need it back you may have other ones but while a lot of musicians have certain instruments they always have that one or two that's their kind of go-to sure. uh so with that you know i've gotten to work on you know, the cinder williams uh resonator i've worked on uh susan gibson's uh wow. banjo uh who wrote wide open spaces uh obviously built stoney's guitar mm-hmm. and uh just d- different musicians at different times you know would stop in and you know the manager drop off guitar hey fix this and i have yet to work on willie's guitar that would be the dream, but only one person can touch it. <laughs> Who's that? Steve Erlewine is the only guy who can touch Willie's guitar. Man. And there's a really cool story. There's more dead skin on his guitar than uh, wood on part of it. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It's actually hard <laughs> like rock, but it's his dead skin. It's nasty. Let's talk a little bit about uh, waterfowl hunting over silhouette spreads. This is something you guys have been doing for an exceptionally long time ever can you talk to me a little bit about the changes you have seen in decoy spreads over the years from silhouettes from them losing their popularity in favor of the full body for a while to finally finding their way back into waterfowl trailers all over north america yeah that's a, that's actually a really good topic <laughs> obviously it should be but man we started hunting silhouettes i would say when they when silhouettes started mm-hmm. and the thing is, we hunt lessers. We've always hunted sure. lessers. And so lessers are just really, really black snow geese. <laughs> hmm. They act a lot like snow geese other than they respond better to call. But other than that, they travel in big flocks. And in those days, we had a million to a million three birds on our roost lakes. And that's one lake, oh private, catch a couple private, which we still hunt today. And so when, when you have a million birds traveling in a, in a 60 square mile radius, there's birds everywhere, megawads, and throwing out, you know, five dozen decoys ain't going to do it. So, you know, we all started out, the, the evolution was, went from, uh, there was no full bodies really in those days, to say of any really kind, and they were extremely cost prohibitive. And so uh, to try to throw a big spread and hide a bunch of guys, you know, volume came out. There were shells. We used shells for a long time. And then when Outlaw came out with, their uh, their first silhouette it was just a game changer i mean we're like oh my god we can now throw you know 700 to a thousand decoys 
and put it in the back of a trailer. Mm-hmm. And but the problem was there there was a real hot rise in that business where you had a couple of guys making it, and Jenny Veins came out, and Jenny Veins concept was good, uh, similar to what a dive bomb is now, but they shined like a diamond. And the bad part is, you know, with goose hunting or any waterfowl, if it flares one bird one time, everyone's like, nope. Sure. <laughs> nope, can't yeah. do that. We'll never do that again. <laughs> and it, and that's just because it's like you're looking for excuse. But, uh, you know, as as real geese started, I would say, investing in the technology and the people to understand, you know, there's one thing to be a manufacturer. It's another thing to have the right people who really know their stuff and uh, getting them designed correctly with uh, a material finish where they didn't shine, mm-hmm. where they didn't just fall apart after, you know, five hunts with the ink falling off, things like that. I started that revolution. The, mm-hmm. And so for a long time, people loved them. You could hide a ton of stuff. A lot of people, you can make mass changes to a spread with a wind shift or mm-hmm. anything else. And, and more importantly, you can hide people. I mean, hiding in a, to me, hiding is more important than anything else uh, in, when it comes to any kind of hunting, but especially goose hunting. A lot of eyeballs look for a lot of things to go wrong. And it was a very limited resource, uh, very, very limited resources of blinds. I mean, I got into this, this business whenever the, I would say the revolution had happened which, or was happening. You know, you had herders before, but everything was still kind of standard, you know, done it 100 different uh, hundred years worth of stuff. Well, now it's like layout blinds were coming about sure. things like silhouettes are coming out. So now people are in the middle of the field. We weren't edge hunting. You're in the middle. Well, right. you got to hide and silhouettes made that easy. But then a guy uh, named Tom Matthews came about and Tom Matthews created one of the biggest, I'd say monsters in the waterfowl world when he started Avery. Mm-hmm. And he, and what he did was he made really good looking decoys. And that's where people started moving to, uh, moving to like uh, full bodies. Mm-hmm. And then he also made a price point where you know people could buy spreads. I'd say that price point, it, it price point for outfitters and things where you could, sure. you know, you're spending ten thousand dollars. People but doing it for a living. But they were doing it for yeah. a living, and they needed they needed quality. They needed, and that's where and that's where the silhouette kind of dropped off. Was people needed stuff that lasted mm-hmm. and could take a beating. And you know the stake system that was there for the Real geese, I mean, if you weren't somewhere south and it froze, you weren't getting them in the ground. I mean, it, the stakes were breaking, so people were like, okay, I can get all these Avery full bodies and the stake system and the movement, and mm-hmm. and that's what did it. Because, and then next thing you know, you know the the in- industry diversifies. There's a ton of guys making decoys, and then you guys came along and brought in another element that you. Let's say that let's say that the, the the truck was going good, but it wasn't getting sure. maximum mileage, and you guys brought the maximum mileage. Right. Obviously, we know there's a lot of geographical variables that must be considered for the long answer. But what is your short answer to the waterfowler that sends you a message with the very simple question: Do silhouettes work? Absolutely, I will. Silhouettes work. The numbers don't lie. You can look at social media and just look at the volume. I mean, the, the, th- the reason silhouettes work is you can do, you can make big or small, you can do things that you can't do with anything else. And I will challenge anybody to say that you can't kill birds or so anytime, anywhere, any day, 
you can do it. But there is an artistry required sure. in silhouettes. The way I see it is you cannot deny the number of individuals that are at the very top of the game that are doing it with success day in and day out. I don't know how that wouldn't give confidence to somebody that maybe only gets to hit the field a half dozen or 10 or 15 or 20 times a year, the confidence to do it whenever you see guys that are literally risking their livelihood day in and day out over silhouettes. You know, if that doesn't, if that doesn't give you enough confidence to run them, to see the best in the world running them, you know, I don't, I don't really know what it takes to change somebody's mind. If you're not killing over silhouettes, if you're scared to come over silhouettes, that's on you. That's not the silhouettes problem. I mean, like you just said, the the guys who do it all day, every day, are doing it and doing it in big numbers. But there, there's also a level that, you know, if you don't believe in it, you can't say it doesn't work. Okay, so it does work. So maybe it's you. Well, pick up the phone, pick up a social media or DM or whatever they call it, and ask guys. I mean – there's a lot of us out there. I, I may not tell you exactly how to do it, but I can promise you this. In the right direction. I'll push you. I'll, I'll get you real close. <laughs> I'll get you. I'll get you close enough to where if I do end up sitting next to you, I have an upfield advantage. But, That's right. <laughs> but uh, and, and I get. And I'll tell you this. I mean, I get calls all the time and have for years from a lot of people. So the biggest names in the industry is they switch. I still get calls. Uh, hey, man. This happening, what would you do? And that's only because, like I said, Ranger Creek, we've been hunting silhouettes since 1999 and every day. I mean, that's when you've got 22 years of sil running silhouettes, you know, and I've run them from Canada down to uh, down to Texas. I've run them in every lessers, graders, snow geese, specs. I've killed them all. And I've actually killed them all with the same spread. Uh, I've killed massive tons of white geese over a Canada spread. Mm -hmm. But the whole key was how to set it up. Well, pick up, pick up your phone, go call somebody, text somebody, study what they're doing, sure. you know, study. And that is the one thing that's, that silhouettes. If there's anything that's on you, but you do yourself a favor and educate yourself on how to settle. Sure. I mean, a guy like Forrest, dude, he's so kind, so helpful. I can promise you he would never, if somebody was genuinely interested in making themselves better and willing to take professional advice, that dude would never, ever leave anybody hanging or steer them the wrong direction. I mean, with the availability to reach people through social media these days, there's really no excuse to, you know, just to go out there and go through the motions whenever you've got resources that would be more than happy to help you. I mean, I see guys they'll post something and say, Oh, I tried silhouettes for the first time. It was terrible. Um, you know, this or that. And you say, well, take, sh send me, send me your setup. Send me a picture of your setup. Let me see what you're working with, you know, because naturally you want to say, well, it's, it's probably something you were doing. Most likely I'd say like 99% of the time it was a, a poor hide. And then the first thing they say is, Oh, well it was definitely a hundred percent. It wasn't the hide. Like the hide was, was awesome. It was the, it was the best tide ever. And then eventually, and then sometimes you will get lucky enough to see a picture and you're like, dude, that thing is sticking out like a, you know, a sore pecker out there, you know, like your layout blind. It's, you got a couple of twigs on there or you got, you know, you're got some talls that look like a 
big wad of toothpaste around you, you know, you're hunting in whites or something and you got the toothpaste spread going where you can just pick it out from a mile away. You know, Forrest, he'll send pictures sometimes of the plane and decoy spreads and live birds. Man, you talk about being able to pick out a decoy spread like quick just by the uniformity of of the general spread shape, the outlines, the hard lines. I mean, birds, they've got a very organic look to them. You know, they'll, they've got things they do and they'll leave little openings, little holes. They'll be, you know, oriented into the wind, feeding aggressively into the wind if it's a hard wind, but it doesn't look like a decoy spread. You know, it's very organic and that's what we always try to preach. It's like, Hey, give a, a organic look, like go watch birds, go study birds. Like you guys, you guys know what they look like because you look at them every day. Some guys, they maybe only have a lease they can show up to Saturday morning. And if that's the case, reach out to one of these guys and say, Hey, what are you doing? How are you setting your spreads? Get online, use search functions and forums. And I promise you can find some really, really, really good answers out there that can, that can make you better. Man, I'll tell you, so I'll go ahead and tell you how, where, where my success comes from in what you just said. So for when I started guiding, uh, when I started Ranger Creek and I was on my own, I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have a, a, a draw of this of talent we have now to discuss this with. It was literally me and I had some other guys, but helping out, but really I didn't have like the quality of guys out there. Cause obviously the, the technology to, to know people was just a phone, but for probably 10 years or more, I carried a little like flip notebook, a little spiral top. Mm-hmm. And I would draw every single spread of every single day that I hunted, or I'd draw the geese when I was scouting them, where the wind was, what the temperature was. Uh, and you know, what was the wind forecast in the morning? What was the temperature forecast in the morning? And when I went to, when I, when I left that field at dark, I had an outline, almost like a football, you know, diagram of mm-hmm. X's nose. And regardless of what I thought, I would, because many times it would, it, the birds were in a field feeding or, you know, then I, of course I took notes, what's the difference in active feed versus inactive feed, sure. so kind of stuff. And, and so when I went up the next morning, I set that up. I didn't set what I thought. I set what they did. And that's something that I think a lot of guys don't do. They, they try to throw stuff with the wind. Well, the wind obviously does it, but the more that you study and nowadays you can go online and then I think the biggest game changer is drones. Drones kind of forest has the mm-hmm. airplane, but drones let me know how bad of a hunter I really am. Like I'm like, I suck. How did I ever kill a bird? <laughs> Man, Ranger Creek is so good at doing things differently than what other people are doing. And by that, I mean, if so many people get caught up in that, like, I've got to shoot them right in the face. I've got to have that wind right at my back. And you guys are so <laughs> Never. good at side shooting birds freaking the boogeyman coming out from the left quarter panel of the birds i mean like yes and there's a reason you guys are so successful day in and day out and you know another thing googie there's another reason why these drop box of photographs that i have from the ranger creek guys are just they're just unbelievable man these i mean you can see the freaking eyeballs of these birds in these photos. I mean, these pictures that our Ranger Creek guys have been sending over the years, four, five, six years, seven years are just 
they're unbelievable. You total experts, first of all, at hiding inside the spread. I mean, absolutely dialed top of the line, but not just that, but taking what the birds give you. And by that, I mean, not forcing them to do what they don't want to do. Y'all let them do what they naturally want to do. If it's, if it's lined up to shoot them in the face, then you say, okay, we'll shoot them in the face. But if it's lined up for you guys to, you know, shoot them quartering, forward quartering, side quartering, total side shoot, you guys do that. And your results speak for themselves. That's, and that's, and that goes back to the kind of that, how, how I started this thing was let the birds do what the birds want to do. Don't make the birds do what you want to do. And sure, it's fun to shoot them in the face, but after you start side shooting or back shooting, I mean, if the birds, if, if the hot, the height is the height, the height is everything. If you can't hide, you can't kill. I mean, you may get lucky, but honestly, I mean, success comes from hiding and we became experts at disappearing. And I, I think and I've got some photographs, maybe after this podcast, we could throw one up or something. I, I've, uh, when I first started working with you guys, I've got 11 guys in this picture and you can't, and I, and all these dive bombs and it's a loose. We don't, we don't pack in decoys either. Mm-hmm. And you can't see, you can, you can barely see the blind bag, uh, of the guy next to me. And you look down and you, if you stare like, Holy cow, there's a bunch of guys in there. Mm-hmm. But, and that's key. It's like, but the birds, if, if, if they, if they're approaching, I mean, there's so much dynamics of how they approach a field that has nothing to do with the decoys. Get that right. First, mm-hmm. you figure out how they're coming in, how they're approaching. But if, I mean, if you got to make a bird swing, too, too many eyeballs, too much things go wrong, too much everything. And the other thing is we're real big about how we, I mean, I hate to say it. Whenever we hide, you do not need to go camping. This is not an excursion. <laughs> you do not need to have a pile of crap around you. It's like, I've seen birds flare off of, of cups. I've seen birds flare off of shotgun shell boxes. You know, I've seen birds flare off of just about everything. I've seen birds flare off of birds. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, there's there in, in these situations, there's the things you can control and the things you can't control. Sure. So why, why, why create an element of difficulty with the things you can't control? by like trying to make them front finish right. or whatever. It's like, or, you know, a lot of guys are hunting A-frames now. Uh, you know, we've, we've been hunting, we've been hunting A-frames before they were even exented. We, we, we've manufactured our own for always. And that's how the panel blind came out. Some of our blinds, just by looking at the shapes of our stuff, because our blinds, uh, our permanent blinds are at certain angles. Mm-hmm. I mean, certain angles of, of brush look different in the field. You know, I tell people all the time, birds don't walk in. They're not turkeys. Geese don't walk into a spread because a lot of hunters turn around their spread. They turn backwards like, man, that looks awesome. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, get up about 50 feet and look down. Right. <laughs> and it's like boogeymen are everywhere. Exactly. And like you said, they are fun to shoot in the face. But, dude, y'all are dealing with birds that show up before Halloween and they're not leaving until, you know, well after Valentine's Day. So not only are you dealing with different conditions day in and day out, but you're dealing with the same birds day after day after day. It, it, I swear to God, they go to the roost at night and they're like, Oh, Hey, check it out. Forge is hunting over here. On they, they like game plan. They're <laughs> like, okay, Stanfield yeah. is going to be in the, uh, what is it like the big Bettis or something? And yeah, then they're, they're like, okay, 
right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You're right. They're somebody's like, running traffic over here. Exactly. And, All right, heads uh, up, guys, because here's what's going on in 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 Knox County. Do y'all want to eat cotton seed today? Let's go throw some monkey wrench in this thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's the and that's the other part of this deal is learning the mechanics of flight lines and things. Reinforced can, can tell you a lot about this, but flight lines are important with with when you're hunting geese. You knock that flight line out wrong, they shortstop your center field. Pick your stuff up, boys. God, so you're better there. off. They'll do it easily Shoot too, them. man. Goodness gracious. Fast. Googie, I got a question. Everything. Um, yeah. I, I think it was Richter that was telling me this. Um, and I could just be pulling this out of the air, but for some reason I feel like he was telling me this when I was he was showing me around your place that day that I'd met you at the God house and then he took us over the ranchita. But I thought he said something about you were responsible for one of y'all's roost lakes there or something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Winchester or something, or or did you? Okay, okay. Estes. So So you tell me about that. So they. uh, So when I got out there, Jeff Stanfield and uh, Whip, they were already pre-established, and I mean, kind of had the run of the of the nuts out there, and. so for an outsider coming in, especially a young guy, undercapitalized, everything else, I mean, I was scrapping to get what I, you know, I was hunting a lot of wheat. I got really lucky to get to hunt a 100,000-acre ranch of wheat owned by a guy in it from Murillo. So I kind of had it in, but it was it was time for me to get up, to get down to the Knox, to Knox County. I was in the northern end of the county. And uh, so I got access to this one uh, lake called Zon Lake. Nobody would hunt it. The biggest ginormous mud hole i mean seriously the most you couldn't hunt it impossible mud because out in the panhandle we have these things called palayas palayas are are water systems that the buffaloes used to dig up and keep open uh you gotta remember there's millions millions of buffalo at the mm-hmm. time so they'd make these big wallows just like africa uh, cape buffalo do wildebeest and these wallows uh, would fill with water and then of course rainwater and stuff and over time though obviously the buffalo are gone and agriculture practices a lot of these silted in well this the the winchester was the biggest roost lake the zon lake was directly across the street but nobody no outfitters would touch it i mean it was just too difficult to to get but remember we hunted silhouettes <laughs> mm-hmm. and so uh i got on the i got we got on the zon and uh one of our really really good friends a mentor of mine, just a, a guy who's invested a lot in me over the years, a guy named Craig Estes, uh, okay. Mr. Cam, our senator, and uh, a bunch of really great stuff he's done with, with wildlife and stuff out there. But he was, before all that, he was a waterfowl nut, like pure NUT nut back in his 20s and 30s. He's still that way, uh, just the transmission's worn out. <laughs> and so Craig... I take Craig and his brother. They, they said, Hey, we, we've heard about you. You know, we really, you know, we've heard that you, how you hunt, how you call, and we want to hunt with you. I'm like, okay. So I've actually met him at Rochester. You've been in Rochester. There used to be a little cafe there. I know there's not much, anything there. And I said, yeah, I'll take you out the next day. And I loaded up my four wheeler and I took him to Zon. And you, it, you literally had to put people on your four wheeler, but everybody had to stand or sit on top of the cage because the mud was, mud was that deep there. And, I had pallets set up in the middle of the water, uh, like like shipping pallets, and mm-hmm. we'd stand on the pallets. And I mean, there's a I've got a cool picture of Justin and I. Justin looks like he's about 18. I'm we're talking about 25, and we our dogs are literally covered in mud. Everything we had's covered, and we're sitting next to this ginormous pile of geese because every time you shot one, it landed in the mud, 
and you're you're probably 800 yards of mud i mean oh not kind of maybe and so craig's like this place is special i'm like man this place is real special and i've always been big into conservation and and you know went to school for uh wildlife habitat and things like that like by my, my first major i was like Polly shore uh and son-in-law mm-hmm. uh, majored in kung fu or something but um <laughs> they uh and so craig and his and his cousin david just they saw they saw the passion Craig's like let's get this let's do it and uh obviously being extremely active with ducks unlimited and trout unlimited uh and being a pretty good writer i knew how to write grants i've written a lot of grants for for projects and uh next thing you know pljv which is the playa lakes joint adventure program don't, uh, puts a ton of money in there and dug the whole thing out put the waterways back in wow I mean, i'm talking about digging out digging out a 600 acre lake i mean serious wow. serious amount of dirt work done and yeah. and now it is i mean it, in my opinion it's one of the fifth wonders in the world i mean it's re- it's truly reestablishing an estuary or, or a, a roost lake where it was gone i mean wow. it was only a matter of time till what i was hunting was to be gone and now mm-hmm. it's just I mean, you've seen it. It's like, it's unbelievable. Yeah, how fulfilling was that whenever that thing just started, <laughs> you know, growing and growing and growing and then, you know, just knowing that you played an instrumental role and in just ensuring the flight to Knox County is going to be strong the, for many years to come. I remember the first day I hunted it. Craig and I went out there. It filled up because we don't have pumps. There's no pumping out there and you can't pump something that big i mean it's sure. a lake and first day of, of teal season was okay but we pounded their souls but what we're goose hunters and then i remember sitting there and we just annihilated absolutely annihilated geese and just going wow we made this like That's cool. we made this and we i still in shock. i still we still go there every single day 12 years later every single day we go there and look and just watch that's all awesome, it's like dude. how did this happen <laughs> you know god's a pretty amazing guy to create the, you know the, what he'd created and then for us to be stewards of it you know not that he needs help but there are times that we can definitely do something and it's like sure. man if everybody did this and it doesn't it just takes a little bit of creativity it's really that is too cool man Googie Squad Fest weekend's going to be here before we know it. I can't wait to see you there, man. Oh, man. Squad Fest is going to be awesome. I mean, so excited for what you guys are, are doing. And, you know, the, I'm worried about our community right now. I'm worried about the waterfowl community. And I feel like it's becoming so separatist and so division that Squad Fest is such a cool opportunity for everybody to get together. Whether you're a dive bomb supporter or not, whether it doesn't matter. Squad Fest is going to be a place for people to get together, talk about what we want to do, like we love to do. Let's hang out, awesome. eat hot dogs, have fun. It's going to be awesome. We got lots, lots and lots of people coming that that are not, you know. I mean, I'm going to ask. It's that just going to be a separate, fun time, man. What's that? I think we should have a separate contest, uh, and I'll be happy to be the judge of it. I mean, there's going to be some phenomenal callers and routines, but I'm thinking about. Maybe like a duck or goose call, like musical solos, like each guy brings <laughs> like hit songs, you know, like maybe some Zeppelin covers or oh, something. Man. I don't know. Something completely different for those of us who aren't as good as, you know, guys like Kyle and Forrest. It's like, hey, stairway to heaven on a goose call. Here it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, man, be uh, be sure to bring your party pants. It's going to be a good oh, time, I'll... my friend. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> I'm going to release that, that video, actually. Uh, 
tomorrow. So that should be a pretty good time. <laughs> well, brother, I uh, party at the Moon Tower. <laughs> I sure appreciate you uh, you taking some time out of your schedule to join me today, especially while on vacation. Uh, I thank you a ton, man. Man, I thank you guys so much, and Dive Bomb and all the team for you know what you guys invested in us. I mean, not only you know you you guys do so much for for a lot of us. I mean, we, we make our livings with your product. I mean, and that's you guys have been such instrumental figures in helping a lot of people put food on the table. And I personally am just grateful for what y'all have done for you know guys like Toby and just all my friends and family and stuff that that you guys have brought into your family and made such a, a wonderful team. Definitely. Yeah, man, we, the feeling is totally mutual. That, that means a lot. It really does. Our, our West Texas family, we, we appreciate them, love them. Uh, you know, Ranger Creek, Stanfield, Final Descent, Crooked Wing, Cadillac Creek. Um, you know, I'm sorry for anybody I've, I've missed. Uh, just, I'm just rambling off the top of my head. Just a couple guys that came to mind, but, we love and appreciate you all, you guys. We thank you so much for helping this thing grow and your support and the just incredible media um, that we've gotten over the years. And uh, man, I wish you wish you safe travels back to Texas. Uh, be sure to tell Mary Carolina I said hello, and uh, look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks, my friend. I will, buddy. I will. She's actually driving, so I can I can do this. So. Uh, <laughs> We look forward to seeing you guys, and for all those guys out there, uh, now's the time to start uh, getting ready for the season. It'll be here before you know it. Yes, sir. Thank you, Googie. I'll talk to you soon, all right, buddy. buddy. See you, pal. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was awesome. Eric Guggenheim, he is one of the most interesting and talented fellows around. He's been a good, good friend to Dive Bomb for a long time. Very thankful for his support over the years. You just heard it. June 11th is almost here. Really looking forward to meeting many of you at Squad Fest in St. Louis real soon. If you can make it, we'd love to see you. Until next time, y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast.